Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight in these podcasts, we bring you a mixture of features and discussions, exploring every aspect of gardening, plant care, garden design, pest control, growing your own fruit and vegetables and container ideas. Plus, we have expert advice throughout the year. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors, based here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Coming up in this edition, techniques to restore your turf to top condition as we discuss essential spring lawn care. RHS advisors answer your seasonal gardening questions and, as always, the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. But first, let's join the experts here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey to hear what jobs they're tackling right now. So I'm Bernard Boardman, I work here at Wisley. I'm based in the fruit department but for my sins, um, I do seem to get asked a lot of questions about ponds because in a former existence, I looked after the water lilies. So now is the time of year when you really need to be finishing off, cleaning up the margins of the ponds. If we leave it too much longer, the frogs will be spawning and then you start disturbing the frog spawn that may or may not be attached to sort of any dead leaves and litter that's sort of uh, floating about the margins of the pond so it's quite important to get that done as quickly as possible but uh, one thing you can be doing which does cause a little bit more disturbance but uh, it's the absolutely the ideal time of year to be repotting water lilies and some of your other aquatic plants because it's as with other herbaceous plants it's really nice to do it just as they're coming into growth so you can pull out the old overgrown um, pots with their plants which if they're water lilies will probably be over spilling the edges remove some of the nice new material the youngest material and put that to one side because that's the material you want to use when you're repotting as for soils it is advisable to use um, aquatic soil um, because it's, it has less nitrates in it so you're less likely to get problems with algae and blanket weed but if that's not available to you then you can use normal garden soil top it off with a nice thick layer of gravel and that will stop um, any fish or um, ducks if they happen to visit your ponds from sort of pulling everything to pieces so uh, there's a few little jobs to be going on with if you don't mind getting your feet wet. A couple of water lilies for you to look out for. There's an old, old variety called Hermione. She's white, very delicately flowered and not too invasive for a pond. She'll go in fairly deep water but will grow in, in shallower water too, say down to a couple of feet. But look out for... A little tiny little yellow um, water lily, which is our native um, Nymphia peltata. It's a pretty little yellow, little yellow flower, and you can almost grow it without a pot. It just floats around, spreads around on top of the pond, and is very easily managed. So look out for those two. You can find more information about all aspects of plants and gardening techniques on the advice pages of our award-winning RHS website, plus general gardening tips, 
and guides to seasonal jobs. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. I'm Jenny Bowden and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. One seasonal task which the RHS advice team receives scores of correspondence about every year is spring lawn maintenance. The rigours of the winter weather can leave grass looking tired and patchy with bald spots, rogue weeds and boggy hollows. So what can you do to help your lawn return to its former glory? Here are some simple techniques that you can use to get your turf bouncing back to a lush green carpet, whether it's the size of a postage stamp or a football pitch. Hello, I'm Guy Barter. I work in the gardening advice team at Wisley Gardens in Surrey for the Royal Horticultural Society. Lawns look pretty manky over the winter, but as the temperature rises, starting in February in the south, they begin to grow. And uh, with a bit of care and attention, you can have the most lovely mossy lawn uh, quite quickly. The first thing that um, you notice on a lawn in the spring, as I'm afraid, moss. And the moss is worse where it's shadier and the drainage is poor and the airflow isn't good. So moss grows at a lower temperature than grass, so it's a good idea to treat moss with a a moss killer. These are always based on um, iron sulphate, so you have to spread them pretty exactly, otherwise the grass goes a bit black. But if it does go black, it's not the end of the world, it comes back. So once you've dealt with the moss, um, that will help the grass to grow. You can also see what the soil is like. And uh, it's a good idea if the soil is compacted, maybe you've had to walk over the lawn in the winter, is to stick your fork in and give it a slight wiggle and do that every foot until uh, you've got lots of holes and you've opened up that compacted turf a bit. If you're not feeling very strong, um, then use a a border fork. It'll take longer, um, but um, it's, it's less tiring than using a big fork. You don't have to do it all at once. If you do um, a couple of square metres a night, you'll get the job done without it having to be too back-breaking. Or you can hire a spiking machine if you want to. So having opened up the lawn and got rid of any compaction, uh, you can then think about whether there's a lot of thatch there. It's not a great idea to rake lawns and get the thatch out in the in the um in the spring so have a look at it and you go down look under the grass if you see a thick mat like a a doormat of dead um, grass and stems that is inhibiting the growth of the grass underneath then you probably will need to take a bit of action so very gently apply your lawn rake and a lawn rake is one of those um delta shaped wire um, uh, contraptions that you uh, put, you drag across the ground and it hooks out the dead grass and it hooks out the the uh, the thatch underneath. But gently because the grass in spring is growing and has got um, delicate tips and if you go at it with a will um, you'll break off the delicate tips of the grass and put your lawn back. Now that you've got the soil in good condition uh, consider feeding the lawn. If it's a lawn that takes a lot of wear and tear and you want it to look really nice it's probably necessary to feed it and the simple way of doing that is to buy a lawn fertilizer and apply it as per the manufacturer's directions these have been formulated so that they don't scorch the grass some fertilizers will scorch the grass which means it looks as though it's been burnt so it's important to uh, to do that and also uh, if you can arrange to do it before the before rain is forecast it'll be that much better it'll be washed into the soil and less harm harm to the grass so now you've got grass that's um it's it's got air around its roots it's very important for plants to have air around their roots it's not being smothered by moss with any luck i should say that when you're raking the thatch out you can also rake up the moss and um, discard that it can be composted if mixed in with plenty of other things
So you've now got grass that's more or less moss free and it's growing strongly and grass grows at a lower temperature than weeds. So and after a little fertilizer and as the weather warms up into April, the weeds start growing and at this position they're extremely vulnerable to lawn weed killer. So it's important to apply lawn weed killers exactly as directed or you could damage the grass. And also take note of the what you do with the mowings because the mowings can contain weed killer and if you put them in your compost heap they can, disaster may follow. The simple answer is to mow very frequently so that all the mowings fall back into the grass and you don't have to gather any up. It's really important to read the weed killer label because on there is often a, a warning that um, the weed killer can persist on cuttings and um, when you put the grass cuttings in the compost, the weed killer is not destroyed in the composting process. It is destroyed in the soil, so the weed killer you put on your lawn isn't going to persist in the soil because the soil is full of microorganisms that break it down. But the microorganisms in compost um, heaps can't be relied upon to break the weed killer down. So it's very important to, to follow this particular procedure. And also, uh, councils don't care for treated lawn cuttings to be put in the green waste because obviously the municipal compost that is produced could be contaminated. So take advice on this if in doubt. Of course, lots of people don't bother to kill the weeds and that's perfectly acceptable. It's not a, it's not, um, a legal requirement that your lawn is weed-free and beautiful and green. A lot of people prefer a more mixed lawn and indeed a lot of people... Um, don't particularly worry if it's mown too frequently. In fact, often people have a really nice bit of lawn near the house and the rest of the grass um, is given a, a less intensive and less expensive treatment. Now, of course, once your grass is growing, we come to the mowing situation. If you can, um, get your mower sharpened before the mowing season. Um, you can either do this at home with a, a, a file or uh, you can take it to a lawn uh, maintenance for a uh, lawn machinery firm who'll do it for you. If it's a petrol mower, do remember to detach the lead from the plug. You must never work on a mower with the lead attached to the spark plug. And electric ones, obviously, um, don't attach to the electrical supply uh, while you're working on them. Mowing is extremely effective. Mowing is what makes a lawn. So ideally, select the, the height you want, which is probably going to be about two centimetres, and uh, mow frequently. It's much better to mow frequently than, than mow occasionally and then take a whole lot off. Naturally, things get out of hand. There's emergencies, domestic emergencies, and other things to do, of course. But if you find your lawn is getting quite tall, take it down in increments. So take off a third first, and when it's recovered from that, take off another third until it's down to that one or two inches, two to five centimetres that one generally wants in a, in a domestic lawn. So now you should have a lawn that's growing reasonably strongly. It is free of moss. It's got an acceptable number of weeds in it. The so underlying soil is in good condition and hopefully the roots will have gone down and spread out deeply because by summer uh, the lawn is under stress from heat and dry periods and a well-grown lawn can, can sweat those out much more effectively than a lawn that is struggling. Guy Barter from the Advice Team. With National Gardening Week almost upon us, there are many attractions and events coming up in the next few weeks at the four RHS Gardens. National Open Gardens Day is taking place on the 17th of April at all four of our RHS Gardens. This means free entry to everyone. 
we want to give as many people as possible the chance to visit our gardens and to find out for themselves what makes them so brilliant. So be sure to come along on that day. Go to nationalgardeningweek.org.uk for more details of other events in your area. At each of our RHS gardens on the 18th and 19th of April, as part of National Gardening Week, a Spring Gardening and Wildlife Weekend is taking place. Come along for a celebration of our gardens and wildlife and be encouraged back into the garden for the new season with advice, talks, demonstrations and much more. As part of this special weekend, at RHS Garden Harlow Carr in North Yorkshire, you can discover the joys of growing plants and be inspired to provide food and shelter for your garden fauna. At RHS Garden Hyde Hall in Essex that weekend, you can get wildlife advice from Hyde Hall's resident beekeeper. At RHS Garden Rosemore in Devon, come and meet those helping to preserve the UK's native plants and animals, from orchids to dormice. Here's Colin Crosby, our gardens curator at RHS Garden Wisley, telling us what's on in April for National Gardens Week. During National Gardening Week, we've got a whole host of activities at RHS Garden Wisley. We've got turf demonstrations when you can find out what you should be doing in terms of lawn maintenance in your garden. In the Pinetum, we had a conifer that came down two winters ago and we're carving a pine cone out of the trunk of the tree so you can come and watch that taking place. And also, in the middle of the week, we've got a daffodil show. And if you come to that show, you can actually meet the judges and find out what it takes to grow daffodils. Full details of all events at our gardens and more are on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens what's on. And if you're looking for an unusual present, why not give an RHS show ticket voucher to family and friends to enjoy a wonderful day at one of our world-famous flower shows? Here, they'll find dazzling gardens, stunning floral displays, top advice from RHS experts, and much more. It's a wonderful present for everyone, not just garden lovers. Again, you can find details of this on the RHS website. Now, if you're a regular listener to the RHS Gardening Podcast... You'll already know that members of the RHS advisory team regularly answer your gardening questions. So let's join my colleagues now to hear advice on some of the queries they've received this spring. I'm Lee Hunt. I'm the Principal Horticulture Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. I'm Guy Barter. I work here at Wisley on the Horticultural Gardening Advice Team. Mrs Edison from Harrogate writes in and says... Um, how do I get fruit on my olive trees? I've had one for several years and I get flowers but no fruit. Um, what should they do about that? What should Mrs Edison do to get more fruit? Should she expect it? Well, the best thing to do is to put your olive tree in your car and drive to the south of France. But um, that would be a bit excessive. So um, give it a plant your tree or move the pot it's into where there's as much light and warmth as possible and hopefully uh, that will result in some fruit. Naturally, if you prune your olive tree a lot, you're going to be cutting off a lot of the flowers. So um, keep the pruning to a, a minimum and uh, you should eventually get some olives. Also, it depends where you live. If you live in northern regions, then fruits are much, much less likely than if you live in the southern half of England. And I suppose if, if it's in a container, it may just have got too dry. I know olives come from warm places, but if they're trapped in a container, they can't go out looking for any moisture that may exist. So if they dry out, the fruits or the flowers are the first things that are going to um, basically be surrendered and... Uh, you will lose your fruit and flower. So keep your containers well watered, even though they are Mediterranean-type plants. 
Mrs Jones of Bognor Regents um, complains that her hydrangeas have become too large and she needs to cut them back, but she's worried she might prevent them flowering. How should she go about this and when? What do you think, Lee? Well, she's quite right. If you prune hydrangeas hard, often it does result in a lot of growth and not many flowers. It's particularly uh, more of a problem if you've got the mop head type hydrangeas because they're not so good. But having said that, um, if people are buying new ones, it should be added that a lot of the more modern varieties are better at flowering on the new growth. So this might be a problem of the past eventually. But going back to the problem in hand, Uh, really it's to try and sort of reduce it without cutting it back very hard so uh, take the long stems and look at reducing back by about a quarter cutting above just something like a nice fat pair of buds that are coming through or shoots often by April as well and that little bit of reduction keeps it within bounds but without hopefully cutting off all the flowers and encouraging too much growth at the expense of blooms. Or possibly you could cut out a third completely and then you could actually take the next third down by half and the final third you just prune in the normal way which is pretty much deadheading it to the next um, set of fat buds so that you still get some flower but you've actually removed some and you've got some fresh stuff coming from the base and then the following year those stems which you've cut by half you take out completely. So you've got a bit of a cycle going on and hopefully you'll still get flowers as well as reducing the height over time. But the thing is, is not to whack it all back in one go because as, as Lee says, you'll just end up with all foliage and no flowers when the plant panics. So we've got an inquiry here from um, uh, Mr Jones of uh, Guildford, in fact, not so far from Wisley Gardens. Um, and he's asking, which are the best slug-resistant hostas to grow in a slug-ridden garden? The general principle we're trying to choose things that are less tasty to slug is you want things that are thicker and leatherier. And something like Devon Green is a variety that's known to be just a bit more of that ilk. And it, it is literally big corrugated evergreen leaves and they're a dark rich green as well so hence that sort of verdant devon color that they refer to that one works quite well often the ones to avoid are the the thinner and you can literally feel this when you sort of touch them and sometimes the more variegated ones so traditionally things like the um oreo marginata um, was um one that was something to avoid because that would be shredded quite quickly by slugs and it does have the the cream variegation that one so look for general principles when you're out there for thicker leathery leaves and you can get those from um from varieties like siboldii elegans but which is huge leaves fantastic very impressive very architectural but at the other end of the spectrum you've got the little miniature hostas and there's the series uh, the mouse ears series and they're absolutely minuscule and they're very, very tough though. So there's one called, for example, Blue Mouse Ears, which is very resilient. So I could suggest that one as well for containers to look up close and intimate. Lovely. Fortifying your hostas against slugs is a national hobby. And uh, you can put up barriers of copper and copper wire. You can attach batteries to the copper wire. You can put gritty, nasty substances that are difficult for slugs and snails to move across. But the blighters are very persistent and you only need to have a leaf to bridge the barrier and you're in deep trouble. 
Um, naturally, one doesn't want to spread uh, pellets around the garden, if at all possible, because uh, although there's no evidence they cause harm, it's better not to, if, if, unless it's really one really has to. So it comes down to a rather clever little idea called nematodes. And these nematodes are microscopic worms that infect slugs and, to a lesser extent, snails through their breathing hole. And then when they infect the slug, they take a bacteria in there and the poor thing dies of a bacterial infection. Well, I think most hosta growers can harden their hearts to the fate of slugs. And so if you consider having a multiplicity of barriers, first of all, put up whatever barriers you feel like having to go at. Remove cover for slugs in the area by picking up leaves and old bricks and things. And then treat the area with nematodes starting as soon as the foliage comes out and going on at intervals, say, about six weeks through the summer. Um, this, this can be highly effective. So... Um, all is not lost if you have a particularly sluggy garden and if you want to put your hostas in pots that is another barrier to the to the slimy invaders mr hawkins from wilmslow has emailed in and he says that he's been purchasing bulbs in pots so things like uh, crocus daffodils and hyacinths and while he's enjoyed them in the house he now wants to put them outside but he's saying can he plant them outside and will they flower again next year or are they just used or should they just be composted well yes and no um some things are really good like crocuses and uh, daffodils and what i tend to do is to give them a good feed of a general purpose fertilizer as soon as the flowers are finished and put them outside until they begin to to die down and then plant them out wherever I want to in the garden. In my experience they usually come back pretty well. Hyacinths on the other hand are rather disappointing. Um, however they do have a, a certain charm. The hyacinth you buy for forcing or that um, you buy in a pot uh, has been heat treated to give it a really thick flower spike and that's beyond the scope of the home gardener and also uh, they decline quite quickly. Nevertheless um, if you plant them out smartly and give them a good feed, they can often carry on for some years and the shoots, the flowers are not the great candles like you have in a bedding hyacinth or a potted hyacinth, but they have a certain open charm and they make good cut flowers. So lots of gardeners plant them out in an out of, out of the way part of the garden and get a few cut flowers for a few years. And um, that can be, that's much better than chucking them away. But ones like paper white and bridal crown, they are more tender types of daffodils. And unless you have a very, very sheltered spot at the base of a sunny wall, then they're unlikely to be much good the following year. But, but the rest of them are, are quite good doers outside, like the tete-a-tetes, but not the very highly scented tall ones uh, that you can get for forcing over the Christmas period. So don't bother with those. It's not worth it. Mrs Foster of Cardiff um, wishes to move her agapanthus that have been in the same spot for several years and she wants to know how to do this and can she do so without stopping them flowering so once she's planted them out are they going to be flowerless and disappoint her for years to come what do you think Lee? No she doesn't say whether they have actually been flowering well or not flowering well so I'm assuming that this is a clump that she's got and it's doing well so I think we want to try and keep it as happy as possible and as lifted as carefully as possible so spring is quite a good time and it's only just beginning to come into growth so not too early not going to be lots of um, activity and growth to disturb but if you can lift it carefully get as many of the roots possible choose a really nice sunny spot for it to go back in because it loves it being sunny and warm prepare the soil well so dig in some garden compost or some manure 
ease it back into the ground at the same level so we don't want it disappearing in too deep or being proud firm it back in well keep it well watered and I think hopefully it should flower because those flower buds have been set the previous season so if it doesn't notice the move you should be all right. You can't lift agapanthus without breaking the roots um, but the fact that the flowers have already initiated the previous season I think uh, bodes fairly well for a successful season of flowers. The RHS advice team. As an RHS member, you can get free advice on any gardening problem from the team by phone, post or email, or in person at any one of the RHS flower shows. Members also get free entry to all four RHS gardens, the opportunity to buy discounted and priority tickets to RHS events and flower shows, such as the RHS Chelsea Flower Show and much more, including of course an extra gardening podcast every month exclusively for members. If you're not already a member, why not find out more about its benefits? Just go to rhs.org.uk forward slash join. That's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, we hope you enjoy the vast range of activities and events on offer during National Gardening Week from the 13th to the 19th of April. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and all the RHS Gardening podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.